Welcome to My 2020. As we look back on this historic year, each of us has had their own unique experience. For many, this has been a difficult year. For others, it has brought about unprecedented challenges and experiences. My guest today is a world-renowned columnist and best-selling author. He has a knack for capturing big ideas and small nuances that make all the difference. He's also the type of journalist who looks out for other journalists, and for that, I'm personally grateful. After reporting on the world, he has been busy looking internally at his own country with its many upheavals and changes. I'm delighted to welcome Thomas Friedman. Tom, how are you? Great, Mina, and back at you. You were my editor, you know, for many years. People don't know, my, my Arabic editor. And you've been such a good friend and sounding board for me. So it's great to be with you. Thanks, Tom. So what a year it's been. COVID-19 has upended so much of our life. It has uh, hurt a lot of people, both in terms of health, losing loved ones, but also hurt them financially. And it's taken a toll, I think, on, on most of us. So tell me, how has it been for you? Well, you know, the biggest change professionally is obviously that um, as someone who really pioneered in a way the idea of a reported column, and because I was the foreign affairs columnist, that meant reporting globally and kind of basing my opinions as much on reporting as as just, you know, philosophical, you know, uh, view of the world. I haven't been able to travel physically. I've been able to travel, though, virtually, actually amazing amount. Um, I'm always laugh when I, I do... Um, uh, almost whatever webinar I do, someone says, uh, Friedman, is the world still flat? And I say, well, you know, this morning I did a webinar in China. I did it in the afternoon in India. And the evening I'm doing Abu Dhabi. Um, yeah, it's flatter than ever. It's nowhere near as fun as me sitting across the table from you and and enjoying, you know, uh, a great meal in the Persian Gulf, you know, at, the, at a restaurant. Um, and I miss that. But, but it's about 85% is good because we know each other we can actually have a really deep interaction. You know what I mean? So, so I don't feel like um, closed off in, in that sense. Um, I'm, I have two daughters. Fortunately, one is in Washington, D.C., she and her husband, and she's the executive producer of All Things Considered Weekend on NPR. So it's been a lot of fun for me to talk to her about the news, and I've got her nearby. Unfortunately, our other daughter and son-in-law are in San Francisco, and we've only been able to see them once since March, and that's been disappointing. And Thanksgiving haven't been able to we didn't can't even get together as a family but blessedly I'm I'm, I'm happily married and I've spent a lot of time with my wife <laughs> and um, we have watched 144 episodes of Gilmore Girls wow we watched seven, seven seasons 22 uh episodes a season we watched all five seasons of the bureau and we're now watching the Queen's Gambit um uh, on Netflix so that's been kind of our routine we work started during the day and What's nice is, as you know, my wife, because uh, the National has covered it so beautifully, opened a museum in the middle of this pandemic to promote reading and literacy called Planet Word. And I kind of enjoy our routine because she she tends to go downtown to the museum during the day. And I do my Zoom webinars all over the world. And then we come together for dinner and I say, how was your day, honey? What was it like at work? <laughs> and I, I'm home all the time. And, uh, and we just sort of, you know, kind of exchange, you know, notes on the day. And then we have our... our um, you know, our Gilmore girls or, or whatever. And, and um, that's been the routine. I confess I'm, I'm tired of living in this postage stamp of Bethesda, even though I get to virtually travel the world. Um, I really haven't been out of, I, I've been down to Washington DC about six times, you know, to visit the museum. That's it. It's also a little awkward because I now in the middle of all this, we kind of had a big change at the New York times in our editorial department. And so I have not actually met physically the people who are my bosses now, immediate bosses. 
it's actually gone fine, but it's just sort of different. You know what I mean? It's part of the disorientation of, of this moment. But I, I say my meta point to you, Amina, is this, that, you know, for me individually, you know, the world was a wild place that I visited over, in all different corners in, of the world. And America, and particularly my hometown of Minneapolis, was home base. That was my stable nest I came back to. So I could go out and cover the Lebanese Civil War or Syria or whatever, you know what I mean? But I always knew I could come home to my stable nest. And now both of my nests have been completely destabilized. My hometown of Minneapolis has been ground zero um, for the whole you know, race emergence of the, the, this really deep uh, debate we're having about structural racism in America. I was actually born two miles from where George Floyd was killed. And I don't have to tell you about America, um, how destabilized we are. And so that's been very disorienting for me. I'm, I'm looking for a quiet place in my head, which I kind of need, and I, I don't quite have it right now. So that's that's a very personal observation. That is very personal because, as you said, there's this idea you always speak about Minneapolis. It, it formed who you are. Your childhood formed who you are. You talk about who your neighbors and who, who grew up with you. And that helped form your mindset and who you were as a person. Do you think that that Minneapolis of your youth has changed, that that mindset wouldn't emerge from there today? It's a really powerful question, and I think about it a lot. You know, um, you know the Minneapolis um, that I dreamed of, you know, that I carried out into the world, that was partly real, partly um, imagined, as all our hometowns are, as, as I'm sure parts of Mosul would be for you, um, was a place where pluralism worked. It was a place where pluralism worked. Now, when I grew up, pluralism was mostly about Jews, Catholics, and Protestants, all white getting along because we had a very small uh, community of color. Now, of course, you know, Minneapolis has got a huge Somali population, um, a Liberian population, Hmong population in St. Paul. So it's become incredibly more diverse. Um, nevertheless, it was really working in, in a lot of ways. It had its problems, but there was a sense that people wanted to get caught trying trying to fix it. And then George Floyd happened and, and blew it all up. But that that Minnesota, um, even if it, it, it was imagined uh, part of it or part of the time, what it, what it bred in me um, and really always impacted my coverage of the Middle East is that um, if there's a common thread uh, between from there to the Middle East, it's that um, I've always been about how do we promote pluralism? Um, religious pluralism, gender pluralism, education pluralism, and political pluralism. And like whatever I was for, and I've been for some things that turned out really bad, the attempt to, through an American invasion, install pluralism in Iraq, that did not work out. Um, my support for the Arab Spring, um, uh, Arab-Israeli peace, UAE-Israel deal, Syria, you know, reconciliation, what why I why I enjoy visiting the UAE, you know, why I have a soft spot for UAE, is that if you're working on pluralism, I'm your friend. In fact, Mina, I'm your sucker because I, I believe that um, uh, 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 places where pluralism is alive and well is are places where people of all faiths, creeds, colors, genders are realizing their full potential, have a better chance to do it. And places where that's not true, where people aren't realizing their full potential, that's places that blow up, you know. Um, and so that's what I, that's what Minnesota gave me. 
That's what I brought to the Middle East, maybe naively in some some cases, um, but uh, that's what it was always about. I, I wasn't here to for oil or for power or for you know I didn't support any of these. You know, uh, people always want to impute that to you. Actually, it it's more naive than all of that. You know, <laughs> it's this is what I was about. This is what I'm about. And if you're for those pillars of pluralism, as I said, I'm your friend. If you're not, I'm not your friend. You know, it's interesting what you were saying about that common thread that could go from um, Minnesota all the way through the Middle East. In some ways, what COVID-19 showed us is how similar we are and what we care about. And it, it made all of our worlds, I think, shrink in some ways, even though virtually we were able to connect. But I think our immediate world shrunk. And suddenly we all cared about the same things. And we all wanted to make sure we were healthy, our loved ones were healthy, and that you know we would have income coming in. And, and so in some ways, how do you think COVID-19 was an equalizer? But at the, on the flip side, how much is it going to create even more inequalities? Well, you know, the thing with pandemics is that they – they accelerate everything, you know, because they're just a giant stressor. So whatever fractures are there, they get widened. Whatever trends are there, you know, they tend to get um, accelerated. I think the biggest thing that's going to come out of this pandemic is that it's going to accelerate something that I've actually been writing about in my last book. I called it the age of acceleration, that I think we're on the cusp of the most amazing era of creative destruction in human history. So why is that? Never before have more people around the world had access to cheap tools of innovation, starting with this thing, you know. For those who can't see it, it's the mobile phone. My iPhone, yeah, my iPhone. Never have more people had access with these cheap tools of innovation to high-powered computing through the cloud. The most high-powered computing through the cloud is now available to you and me for pennies. Unprecedented. Never have more people with more tools of innovation, more access to cheap high-powered computing, had access to more free money. Interest rates are, basically money's free, 1% interest rates. So never have more people, had more tools of innovation, um, more access to high-powered computing, more cheap money, and had never there been more problems to solve. Now you put all four of those together and you are going to see kaboom. I mean, you, you are going to see an age of, of, uh, uh, of creative destruction, new things coming in, and old things going out, I think like we've never seen before. Um, we, we've, we've developed a vaccine. It usually takes eight years in less than a year. And by the way, China did their version of it. Europe did their version of it. You know, America's doing their version of it. And now just think about that one little sliver. Can you imagine the industries that are now gonna fork off from just all of these new mRNA vaccines and way to develop vaccines so I'll take you from there to the mundane. We have a local Chinese restaurant in Bethesda that we've been going to with our girls for 30 years. You know, And when the pandemic started, um, of course, I, I said, let's give them business. We want to help them. You know, So I went on their website and it was really clunky. You know? I went there the other day. Hi, Mr. Friedman. Welcome back. What would you like? Oh, last time you had three egg rolls. Now you want to. They, they already applied AI to it. You know what I mean? And it, it just, we got your credit card. No, one click. That's just a little Chinese restaurant. Now scale that digitization process. What you and I are doing, we weren't doing this a year ago, you know, now scale it through everything. So you're going to see the rapid acceleration of digitization throughout the economy. And it's going to be very destabilizing and very amazing at the same time. You know, one of the things you spoke a lot about before anybody else was talking about was MOOCs, 
this idea of having online learning um, at a university level and that people could actually get their degrees. And I have to say up until a year ago, while some people were adopting the idea, it was still seen as very novel. So how much do you feel that online learning and the ability for people to accept an online degree has changed through COVID-19? Well, that will be one of the things that's been accelerated. So the, the, the key thing, so the background trend, let's look at the background trend, then let's look at the, 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 the real-time trend. So the background trend is the half-life of skills in an age of acceleration just gets shorter and shorter. So, um, so the general trend is we have to move from just-in-case learning, meaning that we're going to teach you this just in case you might need it when you're editor of the national, to just-in-time learning. Mina, you got to learn how to do a podcast, Okay. I've never done a podcast before. Well, you go to this website and you're going to learn how to do a podcast. So learning, because the half-life of your skills as just editor of a paper newspaper, they just really shrunk. So you needed to get reskilled in a, in a minor way. And maybe one of your porters now had to learn the technology of podcasts. And then the ecosystem of podcasting. It's just a small example. That's actually going on everywhere. That's the background trend. Now I had a pandemic and it just accelerates that. So um, the biggest thing you're going to see is a merger of two giant trends. Well, one trend is that, um, you know, we had these knuckleheads in Hollywood who bribed these people to get their kids into USC. You know? And I wanted to call those people and say, excuse me, but if you're going to bribe someone to get your kid into college, could I suggest you bribe them to get them into IBM's in-house university and not USC? Because if I showed you, I mean, IBM's in-house university, you'd say, Tom, how do I get to take courses there? It's awesome. And if I showed you Infosys, the Indian high-tech company, in-house university, you'd say, Tom, who do I bribe? Do you know someone there? Okay. So these in-house universities, because the skills of their workers, the half-life is shorter, and they need to have just-in-time learning. Now, the big merger that's going to happen is that the University of Abu Dhabi or the American University in Sharjah is going to create a partnership with Infosys. So their students will actually be able to take online learning courses from a cutting edge company that are all just in time skills. And at the same time, people in that company may want to study Arabic at American University of Sharjah or study the history of Islamic art. And you're going to see a merger of these two trends and the great education platforms will be Apple plus Stanford plus this community college. That's where this is going to go. So you've spoken about how you've spent some of the time of this year, uh, less travel, more at home. You've always had big ideas. So, of course, you're processing a lot of what COVID-19 has, has meant. So can I ask you, what have you learned? What has this year taught you, Tom? Not big picture, but you as an individual. I don't want to say I knew all this before because I certainly didn't. But I think, I think the big point about this year for me and uh, was something I emphasized in all my talks is that you know, I've, I've had a lot of different interests. I've written books about technology, the Middle East. And in 2008, I actually wrote a book about the natural world because I have an interest in environment. It was called Hot, Flat, and Crowded. And as soon as this pandemic started, that was the book I went back to. Those, it was the experts I talked and learned from in that book, writing about ecosystems that I actually fell back on. So why is that? Because to understand this pandemic, you have to understand this is actually a natural systems event. So you and I are used to covering political events or we're used to covering market events. Well, this is a natural systems event. And unless you put your 
mind in the mindset of natural systems, you're not going to understand this, which is why Trump never understood it, because he's someone who's only looked at the world through markets. So I may have said this before because my daughter, Natalie, produces a show on NPR. I never miss it on weekends. And um, at the height of the pandemic on Easter Sunday, they had a um, roundup of pastor sermons from churches all over America. What did pastors tell their flock at the height of the pandemic? It was very interesting. And my favorite was Pastor Michael um, Curry from the National Cathedral um, in Washington because he ended his sermon with singing a little song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now just substitute Mina, she for he, she being mother nature. And you'll understand what I think has to be the starting point for analyzing this pandemic. She got the whole world in her hands. Unless you were alive in 1918 and are now 103, no member of our generation of human species has been around when she, Mother Nature, had all of us in her grip. You said it earlier, all of us everywhere facing the same challenge. What is the challenge we're facing? Actually, we're facing, to put it in American baseball terms, one of Mother Nature's fastballs. So Mother Nature throws fastballs at her species. They're called droughts and floods and wildfires and hurricanes and tornadoes and germs and viruses. Now, viruses actually are just other living things looking for a warm place to call home. But when they come as pathogens, um, they are fastballs. And when Mother Nature throws these fastballs, who does she reward? She doesn't reward the strongest. No. She doesn't reward the smartest. No. She actually awards the most adaptive. That's what Darwin taught us. And she basically asks you, and I'll end here, three questions about your adaptation strategy. One is, do you respect my fastball? Do you respect my virus? Because if you don't, it will hurt you or someone you love. Second, she asks, are you coordinated in your response to my fastball? Are you coordinated individually and collectively, communally? Because if you're not, because I evolved my fastball to find any crack in your immune system, either individual or collective. So you better be coordinated. And third, she asked, have you built your adaptation strategy to my fastball on chemistry, biology, and physics? Because that's all I am, says Mother Nature. I'm just chemistry, biology, and physics. You can't talk me up. You can't talk me down. You can't say, Mother Nature, we're having a bad quarter here at the UAE. Could you take a quarter off? Now, she's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate, and she always bats last, and she always bats a thousand. She hasn't lost a duel with one of her species in 3.8 billion years. Um, if your adaptation strategy, though, is built on politics, ideology, and election calendar, she will hurt you or summon you love. So that's been the framework that's guided me, that I put myself in the mindset of a natural systems event, and everything I wrote flowed from that. So in addition to this natural systems effect, which is an incredible framing of what we've been going through, you've also had a major political system change happening in the United States. You mentioned, of course, um, what happened with George Floyd, but also, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was a sense that the United States is not in a good place 
to say it as an understatement, really. Um, and then, of course, we had the elections. The whole world was gripped with elections. Um, so tell us, give us a status report almost from where is the U.S. today and how have you found the outcome of the elections, but also how divided the United States feels in 2020? Well, what the elections are reflecting in part is the age of acceleration we've gone through. In the last 10 years in America, there are a lot of Americans who went to the grocery store and they, they went to the checkout lady and she wasn't wearing a baseball cap. Then the men went into the men's room and there was a woman next to them. Yeah. Then they went from there to the office and their boss just rolled a robot up to their desk and seemed to be studying their job. It all happened at the same time. My sense of home, my sense of social norms, my sense of work got completely destabilized. And along came a guy named Trump who said, I can stop the wind. You're feeling challenged by these winds of change. I can stop the wind. That's why Trump's metaphor of the wall was so brilliant. Because it wasn't just about a wall to Mexico. It was, it was a metaphor. Your life is being destabilized by these people, and I can stop the wind. I'm going to guarantee that when you go to the grocery store, that cashier lady is going to be wearing a baseball cap. When you go into the men's room, there ain't going to be a woman next to you. And when you go to work, the Chinese or a computer aren't going to take your job. And, um, and that resonated with a lot of people. That coincided with a complete change in our information ecosystem. So in two, just in 2016, what was the big challenge to our election? Intervention by Russia started amplifying trends on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, this election, we didn't need Russia to mess up our heads because now everybody's generating information. Lying became normalized thanks to Trump and enraging people with lies became a huge industry. It became a major growth industry. We actually may need, Mina, a special line in our quarterly GDP report that says, you know, consumer durables were down this quarter by 10%, but lying was up 30%. The lying industry, oh my God, it grew 30%, you know, year over year. Um, so you combine that deeply agitated people because of highly destabilizing trends, and then a whole industry uh, uh, that normalizes lying, that isn't even afraid, embarrassed to lie. And then at the center of this, a, a shameless leader, you know, uh, who doesn't stop at any red lights. And you have a, a really destabilized America. Um, and um, I'm all I'm thinking about now is how, how we restabilize, and it's not going to be easy. It won't be easy, partly because it's compounded by the effects of the pandemic, both economic and social. So as you look towards 2021 and president-elect Joe Biden becomes President Biden. What is the most pressing item on his agenda, in your view? Well, the most pressing item is, is to stabilize the economy uh, as we now, you know, hit this incredible acceleration of the pandemic. And it's like everywhere now. I mean, you have to be afraid to go out. You know, I mean, um, anywhere you go, when there are 160,000 new cases a day, and remember, this is sort of pyramid, just each one grows on top of, you know, the other. You can run into this pandemic anywhere now. Um, and so he's got to get a national mask mandate. 
and some real social distancing without totally locking down the economy to just stop the acceleration. Otherwise, hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, particularly in rural areas, you know, where they just don't have the beds. The good thing um, is that we've got coming down this other track of vaccines now that are clearly effective and they're going to get fast tracked. And I expect by early December, if not even before, uh, frontline workers and the most vulnerable will be getting vaccinated. And I hope that old guys like like me, maybe January, February, will start you know getting vaccinated. And that by spring, there'll be a critical mass of people that you really can think about flying again, traveling again, tourism again by uh, May, June. So that will be very much in Biden's favor. And because there's so much pent up demand, the economy will explode. Just between now and then, you know, there are a lot of people just been hanging on. You know, small businesses, a friend of mine owns a hotel in Miami, workers who haven't paid the rent for six months. But now they're not going to be able to pay for three more months. So we need to get some stimulus in here. And I'm not sure the politics will, will allow for it. You know, the Republicans going to want to launch Joe Biden, you know, a new administration with new stimulus. And who knows, you know, so, but that's going to be the challenge. So I want to go back to, to you um, and your experiences. I wanted to ask, travel has been such a big part of your life. Do you see yourself traveling again once vaccine is available? Or do you feel like your life rhythm has changed to a point where you can't imagine yourself getting on a plane, going from Abu Dhabi to Singapore to Delhi, back to New York, and, and back on again in a day to London? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, you know, I just think about last time I, I traveled, it was I literally went um, Washington, Dubai, Singapore, Singapore, Mumbai, Mumbai, Dubai, Dubai home. I know I, your itineraries were always crazy. Whenever I tried to catch yeah. you. I saw you somewhere. I called you on the phone. You and the actual um, engagement time, sort of really valuable engagement in that whole trip was probably, I'm going to be generous, five hours. You know what I mean? Where I really was engaging, like, like you and I are engaging now where I'm learning, I'm engaging, I'm thinking, about five hours. The rest was sleeping, travel, two hotel, you know, back and forth. And so I am going to travel because I there's so much you miss from not being there. And, and um, my motto is always, if you don't go, you don't know, you know. And you can't, I'm not looking to cover a war, but you can't cover a war, you know, through Zoom. Um, but you also just can't cover a dynamic society through through Zoom. But that said... You know, I mean, I will, it's not that I won't go, but what I'm going to do is do what we're doing now so much more. Hey, I mean, let's, let's zoom for now. You know, it's better than the telephone. You know, you, you, we, I can see you, you can see me, we can motion with our hands. We can, uh, and so I, I think my right life's actually going to get richer. I will travel, probably be a little more selective and maybe bunch more things together. You know, the Sir Banias conference with this, with that, you know. But um, also, I intend to do this. This is what you and I are doing, not going away at all. So, but there will, so there'll be a new equilibrium. Bill Gates was quoted as saying to our deal book conferences today, these are my words, not his, but I wouldn't want to be in the airline business. You know what I mean? Uh, the long haul airline business. You know what I mean? I, it's going to change. I can tell you, I will be taking fewer business flights. There's no question about it. And um, at, a, at a maybe 10% loss to content or 15%, but not a 75% loss. You and I are having almost as good a conversation, just sort of raw conversation as we'd have in person. You know what I mean? Not quite, frankly, but almost. At so much less 
you know, impact on our just stress levels, uh, physical health. So you, you got to, that will affect how we think about things. But I'd look at it as addition, not subtraction. Well, I've discovered this whole new way. I can just call you up and, and, um, and, and say, I mean, get, get three of your people together and I'll get three of my people together. And, and that'll be the new, new, new norm, you know? So I, I, I don't see it as subtraction. We go back, we forget about this. It's, it's, there'll be some subtraction from the physical, but I don't know how much yet. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to ask you one final question. I promised you I'd keep the conversation short, but it's impossible to keep a conversation with you short. That's fine. And, and I, I guess my, my final question to you is, you know, 2020, you know, start of a new decade, uh, there's, there's a lot that's been going on, like you said, with technology, with politics, with economy, and then, of course, the pandemic. So for you, as you reflect um, with the closing out of 2020, what are you most grateful for? Um, I, I'm most grateful for my friends, my friends around the world. I miss my friends. I miss you. I miss all my friends around the world. It's great to do this, but um, it's not like us sitting at that seaside restaurant you once took me to. I don't remember where. Um, That's right, uh, in Abu Dhabi. In Abu Dhabi, you know. But I miss, I, I'm so blessed. I mean, I have friends all over the world and good friends, people I really cherish, you know. And... Um, uh, and, and they range from, you know, journalists and, um, and personal friends like you to golf buddies and, you know, things like, I mean, just all over the world. And I really miss my friends. That, that's the thing. And, of course, my, my family and daughters, you know, most of all, obviously. But, but I really miss hanging with my friends. Um, they're such a huge part of my life. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. I think it is true. But like you said, for people you already have that connection with, we just have to continue these conversations from afar until we can be together again and you can come visit us in, in Abu Dhabi once more. Or You're going um, to pay me for this by taking me back to that restaurant. <laughs> I will take you back to that restaurant. I promise. And I actually know the name of it, but I'm, I'm scared to mention it in case it sounds like it's a plug, but I know exactly the one you're talking about. <laughs> I can still see it on the sea there. It's very cool. <laughs> it was very cool. Well, Thomas Friedman, thank you for always being so generous with your time and your thoughts and inshallah 2021 is a better year for us all absolutely inshallah <laughs> thank you for listening to my 2020 i've been your host mina al-arabi this podcast was produced by arthur edison and aisha khan if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcasting app please also continue to follow our podcasts and reporting on the nationalnews.com